Hi, my name is Rachel Morrow, and I'm a data assistant here in the EDIT program at Northwestern University. Welcome to the EDIT Community Spotlight. Today's episode features a conversation between EDIT postdoctoral research scholar Lauren Beach and the founder of the Asexual Visibility Education Network, also known as asexuality.org, David J. In their conversation, they cover basic definitions of asexuality, talk about what it means to be on the A spectrum, and discuss the advocacy work David has done for the past 20 years. While centered around asexuality, this conversation also focuses on broader themes of intersectionality and inclusiveness in queer spaces. On the podcast today, we are delighted to have David Jay, who is the founder of the Asexual Visibility Education Network, to chat with us to talk about uh, best practices that researchers can follow when thinking about doing research studies of asexual health, and also advice for community members to follow um, who, as they engage with researchers, again, thinking about how to improve asexual health uh, by and for the community's recommendations. So I guess with that brief introduction, I'll ask you, David, to give more of a bit of a background about yourself before we jump into some questions. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I am the founder of asexuality.org, uh, which I started in 2001. I've been doing ACE advocacy for since that <laughs> for a long, long time. Uh, and before then, really spent time figuring out for myself um, what my own ACE, which is a, a slang umbrella term for people in uh, on the asexual spectrum, um, what my own identity meant. Um, and uh, I really helped uh, to form the community at a time when there wasn't much community for ACE people. Uh, and I got to see the community come together uh, from a pretty early point to, to what it is now. And since, since the beginning, working with researchers has been a really, really important, uh, a really important part of how we've established the public discourse that we know is going to be beneficial for our community. And so it's really, impo uh, really important to have this conversation, and I'm really grateful to get a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much, David. I feel like you have just answered all the questions in a 30-second nutshell. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I really can't wait to dig in with you more to, to really drill down yeah. into some of these topics. So, um, and we are delighted again to have you here. I know how instrumental you've been at, in terms of helping build the community, helping get the word out about the community, all of the different media appearances that you've made and that others have made to try to help build awareness and understanding of the communities um, and what can be done to advance but, you know, I guess health and well-being and overall just quality of life. So thank you so much for your service and for the work that you've done to make help make the, the ACE community what it is today. Um, and we really can't wait to, to jump in. So the first question I have for you, you talked a little bit earlier about saying that ACE is this umbrella term. But before we even get to the idea of the umbrella, can we talk a little bit about what specifically is asexuality? Yeah. So if you go to asexuality.org, what it says on our homepage is an asexual person is someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction. So as an asexual person, I still experience attraction. I still have a desire to form intimate emotional relationships with people. I just don't have a desire to make sexuality a part of that. Um, 
And uh, one of the really beautiful things that's happened since our community formed is that there have been a range of other identities that have come up around uh, what was initially just a community of asexual people. Um, because like most components of human sexuality, asexuality is on a spectrum. So we'll have people who identify as gray A, sort of in the gray area between sexual and asexual. There are people who identify as demisexual, as experiencing sexual attraction only in the context of an intimate relationship. And so a demi person may need to know someone for six months or a year before they even know if they would ever be sexually attracted to that person. It's not that they are attracted to beginning the need to wait to be sexual. It's that the the way that attraction works for them is different than the kind of the expectations of our society that you're, you're going to be attracted to someone right away. Uh, and the community has really come together to be a place for people to figure themselves out and promote open, honest, public dialogue about ACE experience. Um, ACE being the umbrella term that uh, applies to applies more broadly to our community. And so within the ACE community, I've sort of given some definitions, but one really important definition is that we'll, we'll always have people who show up who are sharing their stories, who want um, to know if there's a place for them, and we'll say, look, the, the word, words like asexual are tool and not a label. If it, if it fits you, then you pick it up and you can use it. And if it stops fitting you, you can put it down. And no other person can point at you and tell you whether you were asexual or not, or whether you were demisexual or not. And so even though we have these definitions, uh, we really prioritize people's self-identity before anything else. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I think that I've learned something, and I'm sure that our audience members will definitely feel the same way. And one thing that, so I wanted to go back to the very first part of the definition that you gave, which you said on the website, asexuality.org, which of which you are the founder, it says that asexuality mm -hmm. is defined as the lack of sexual attraction to other people. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, how did that definition come to be the one, you know, there are many dimensions of sexual orientation that exist. and. Attraction is one of them, and then I think, and as you went through the answer, you talked about identity and how specifically the community is prioritizing self-identity, which I think parallels um, what you see in, say, LGBT context as well. But then, um, yeah. in terms of the overall definition, I'm curious why the attraction component was the part that is used to define the community broadly. So I think this came together in the, in the early days of the AIDS community. Um, uh, so I started AVEN, and then a couple of other competing sites came up that wanted to be kind of gathering points for asexual people. And a lot of those competing sites had much more limiting definitions and wanted to enforce them. So they said, to be asexual, you can't have ever been sexually attracted to anyone and you can't experience, um, you can't, you can't uh, masturbate, you can't experience sexual desire of any, in any form. And within our community, uh, what we found was, as the, the people who organically wanted to use this term, um, many of us experienced sexual arousal. Um, many of us masturbated. Um, some of us had a history of engaging in 
And in the right circumstances, even enjoying sexual activity, even if uh, it wasn't, we, we weren't doing that because we were sexually attracted to people. We were doing that because uh, because we were in a relationship with someone, and under the right circumstances, with the right consent, it it was a form of touch that we liked with other forms of touch. Um, so. Uh, when uh, other ideas like an asexual person is someone who does not experience sexual desire, or an asexual person is someone who does not experience sexual arousal, um, or an asexual person is someone who does not experience um, sex sexuality as a positive thing, like those didn't resonate with the community of people who were showing up and using the word in the way that a definition around sexual attraction did. Yeah, thanks so much for that. I, I really appreciated also that you went into behavior and desire. Uh, in that explanation as mm -hmm. well, because I think so often people wind up being confused uh, since there are so many dimensions to something like sexual orientation or sexuality itself about what exactly the word means. And so I appreciate also the message I heard there about inclusivity in terms of building the community intentionally. I think that's incredibly important and agree with you 100% about um, thinking about ways that you can we can affirm people through words rather than having them be weaponized um, to restrict people or to police people in terms of how we would understand have people go about understanding their identities and forming community. Snaps to that. I, snaps will translate well. <laughs> Say the word snap. Yeah, we run, as, as you may know, and maybe people, I, I've done a lot of work in the bisexual community contexts, and we run into that same phenomenon. So <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, it's really common, right? Like that having um, a definition yeah. be overly rigid to be used then as a way to separate people rather than to bring them together, I think goes against the intention of why you would create a community in the first place. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I'm putting too much of myself into this. I, I'm, you are the person <laughs> who's supposed to talk. <laughs> but anyway, um, to get back now, so we've kind of gone through what is asexuality. We talked about the attraction mm -hmm. being the major focus of the definition in the community context. I think and we've gone somewhat mm -hmm. through um, behavior and identity and what those things mean also in relation to the word asexuality. Another thing I wanted to unpack a bit more was the term ace and also the term ace spectrum because I heard you use both of those words in the opening uh, as you introduced yourself and I would like to learn more about what those mean. Yeah, so ace, I want to say it was 2008. Eight or 2009, um, the word ace originally emerged as a slang term for asexual. So it's spelled A-C-E, mm -hmm. and um, it was originally kind of a, a shortening of the of asexual. Originally it was A-S-E, and then someone said, oh, it might as well be A-C-E, because that's sort of available in the queer namespace, and it's a cool thing to, to occupy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so originally it was just slang for asexual, and then... It, there became this need to refer to the community as something besides just the asexual community. As other identity groups became more prevalent, um, uh, one, that reminds me, I need to talk about romantic orientation, I'll do that in a second. But, mm -hmm. uh, so as, a, as other identity groups became more relevant uh, within the community, 
when we were doing visibility work and when we were referring to the community, it no longer felt fair to refer to it as the asexual community. Uh, and rather than starting to create an acronym or kind of string out a bunch of long words together, we uh, decided to start using ACE as an umbrella term. Um, and now there are, uh, I think for, for many people, ACE sort of serves as a primary identity because it's a way of naming uh, the shared experience of, exper of exploring intimacy outside of the, the social script of sexuality. Great. I think that's really helpful. So ACE, spelled A-C-E, is often, it's an umbrella term that people also sometimes use as an identity term to reflect belonging to the larger, I guess we'd say, ACE communities. <laughs> is yeah. that true? Yeah. Um, of, of asexual, uh, gray A and demisexual people, um, and to some extent, aromantic people, which I'll, I'll talk about aromanticism in, in a second, though so, so often that's, that's still treated as separate. Um, so one other set of identities that is, is, has kind of come out of the ace community that's important um, has to do with romantic orientation. So within the community, pretty early on, people started saying, I don't experience sexual attraction, but I experience romantic attraction. I can be homo-romantic, I can be pan-romantic, I can be bi-romantic, I can be aromantic, or I can be heteroromantic. And so people, some people would talk about getting crushes and wanting to date people and wanting relationships that, that kind of felt emotionally romantic. And other people wouldn't. Other people, and I'm, for the most part, one of these, like 80% one of the uh, aromantic. Um, other people like me, would form very intentional and committed friendships, but would have that rush of romantic energy at the beginning of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so people, in addition to their ace identity, which is about how they experience sexual attraction, they would, um, many would start having a romantic identity about how they experience romantic attraction. Um, and especially the folks who were aromantic, who had an experience of intimacy that was outside of uh, a norm in a different way, started talking more about the experience of romanticism. Um, and so much so that there are now some people who identify as aromantic who don't identify as ace. And uh, one of the things that's been happening on university campuses across the country for the past several years is you'll have groups that pop up that are called aces and aros. And so... Uh, ACE-identified folks and ARO-identified folks, and there tends to be a lot of overlap between those two, but it's not uh, complete overlap. Yeah, thanks very much for that, and I I definitely have seen that in asexual community forums and spaces, or ACE space, I guess I sometimes see it called, um, <laughs> and mm -hmm. have noticed that people will say that they identify as, say, asexual but biromantic, and so you'll see those as part of a label. It's no longer that people are saying um, just one word. It's going to be two words next to each other to convey both the sexual and the romantic attractions of a person. Um, is that, yeah. I think, would you agree that's become, uh, how common do you think that is? Is that important for, say, researchers to know about or for I, people I, new to the community to know about? 
I, I think it's become fairly common. I don't know about, uh, depending on the context, people might use one word or both words. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's definitely important when thinking about doing statistical research into our communities that, um, and when thinking about how people may uh, mislabel them. So if there's a survey that uh, asks people to identify as, um, asks ask, ask a sexual orientation question and doesn't include asexual, then people may put themselves, oh, check the box for the romantic orientation. And if there's a question that, one that includes asexual, um, but doesn't include a question about romantic orientation, someone may choose the box for their romantic orientation or they may choose the box for their sexual orientation because in some ways those things are being conflated. And I think it's, it's important to, to recognize that they're distinct concepts within the community at least. Yeah, I think that's very helpful because, you know, I, there's a lot of discussion, I think, across sexual orientation researchers more generally about um, especially the attraction dimension of sexual orientation and what does it mean? <laughs> and that yeah. people like myself maybe think that, you know, we don't think that it's one component that should be measured. And in this discussion alone, I think we've talked about um, sexual attraction, we've talked about romantic attraction. I think we've mentioned some of the emotional context of, in a few different ways. And so um, understanding what attraction is, I think the ACE community really brings something that, that is important to the attention of the entire um, LGBT community, like sexual orientation research communities, uh, in terms of helping people understand more about what, you know, this dimension of humanity, I guess I would say. Mm. So I really love that. Yeah, and I think, thank you. And it, and it gets, um, you know, I, I can't take credit <laughs> really for, um, for things the community has come up with. But one, one of the rites of passage, used, used to be true, I don't know if it's still true, one of the rites of passage of folks in the ACE community forums used to be that, like, at a certain point, everyone would develop an n-dimensional model of sexuality and attraction. <laughs> they'd, they'd try to make a graph, and then it would just, like, turn into a hypercube and become more and more abstract. Uh, as they tried to account for everything, and I think that that it, 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 it's a tough challenge. Um, and I, I know for me, attraction has begun to have, even as someone is, who's aromantic, uh, I still experience lots of different forms of attraction that are about wanting to work with people, that are about uh, wanting to spend time with people in various ways. Uh, and and those attra that, that attraction can be really strong. Um, it just doesn't point in the direction that sort of normative attraction names uh, being pointed at. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's, I, I definitely have seen some of those diagrams. <laughs> I was just look at my notes here. I Thinking about one thing that I've seen quite commonly is uh, people like to make layer cakes. Have you seen some of those? Yeah. Um, because maybe... Yeah, cake. <laughs> Yes, Sorry, cake. No, I was going to say, maybe we can talk about cake and why oh. that you might, if you Google Ace, why you might see a whole bunch of pictures of cake. <laughs> so cake, I, I don't I don't know if cake is sort of, cake is, I think, falling out of favor a little bit because the flag has come to dominate everything as sure. a symbol. And it's a great flag. <laughs> mm -hmm. But so back in the mid-2000s, the Ace community is still the asexual, just the asexual community. And 
uh, it's beginning to take off. We're beginning to get press. Um, people are beginning to show up in pretty large numbers who have spent their entire lives feeling isolated because um, they're not experiencing this thing that everyone in the world around them says is an essential part of experiencing human intimacy and an essential part of being human. So a lot of these people are scared. Um, a lot of these people feel broken in some way. And they show up to this forum on asexuality.org and suddenly they're reading all of these stories from people like them for the first time in their lives. And it's a really powerful, really validating experience. They'll read these stories and then they'll go and they'll post their own and they'll say, you know, they'll talk about the experience they've had and how they've felt alone in them for a long time. They'll ask if they can be part of a community. And one of the things that became traditional to do then was people would come into these threads and they would sort of like pour welcoming and, uh, and validation on them. <laughs> uh, and so they'd be like, welcome, we're so glad to have you here. Like, yes, you, you, know, you belong here. Um, and someone started posting a picture of a slice of cake uh-huh. in those threads um, because cake is this great you know, community food of celebration, right? Like a cake means that there's a lot of people and you're celebrating something together. And uh, cake became so popular as a symbol that we add a little cake emoji that people would post in these threads and then that became a symbol for the community because the, there was a really powerful emotional experience that bonded people in the community together, and that was that moment of validation and that moment of not feeling alone when finding the community for the first time. And so Cake kind of invoked that moment and therefore invoked the community. And uh, so ACES started having, like, in all our meetups, we would have Cake, and uh, there was they made little cake earrings. Like there's cake <laughs> started showing up everywhere. Wow, and still does a little bit. And then several years later, there was a contest to have a an ace flag, and we came up with kind of like the rainbow flag, a flag that is black, gray, white, and purple for um, asexual, gray, asexual allies and queer folks. Um, and that color combination is just really good. And so now you'll see those stripes appear everywhere. Like when I go to, when I hang out on a college campus and when I go to any sort of queer event, there'll just be people who have knitted uh, hand warmers in ace colors and who are wearing ace color earrings like everywhere. People who wear those colors in plaid shirts. Um, so that's, that's become the real symbol. Thank you so much for that. I had no idea about the history of cake as the symbol of, of ACE community space. That is amazing. Um, and I think also hearing you talk about how that emerged as part of people joining an online forum to build community is also really of interest. And we're going to get into that uh, a little bit later. But before we... and transition into that. I had a couple more questions that get back to language and identities, if that's okay with you. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think also they build in nicely in addition to, as you talked about cake, I think the flag, you're right. I see it everywhere. It's a beautiful flag. I don't disagree. I had no idea about the symbols uh, that, you know, the representation within it. So that was cool to learn. Um, and I noticed that one of the last uh, 
name, I guess one of the last things that you listed that the flag came to symbolize was something I also wanted to talk about, which was the word queer um, as it relates mm. to ace communities. And so I, I've another hot button issue that I've observed a lot um, in asexual community spaces, and I identify, I don't know if this matters for this podcast or not, but I identify as demisexual, as you know, so I definitely also intentionally go into these spaces as a member of the community, and not only as someone who's interested in um, research about ACE health, but um, going in and I see this many, many debates about is ACE queer, yes or no, and why does it matter? So I'm wondering if you have any ideas about potential answers to those questions? So uh, the, the, the answer that I've, I've given historically before this became a controversy, which is not, still not a bad answer, okay. is that um, I can't make a statement on behalf of the whole community. What I can say is that historically, many of the many leaders in the East community, myself included, have identified as queer. We have been active in queer movements. And we have been very actively supported by queer movements. So I consider us connected to and engaged in queer community, and many of us are queer identified, both because the word queer resonates with us and because many of us have other intersecting queer identities. There's an ACE community census that's done on a regular basis, uh, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, though, Lauren, you may know them as well. Um, the number of folks who identify as uh, gender non-binary within our communities are very statistically high. Um, yeah. As I was mentioning earlier, you know, the majority, uh, I believe, of ACE folks identify as some romantic orientation other than heteroromantic. Um, and even ACEs who are heteroromantic and ACE uh, have an experience of intimacy that is outside of that, of the of heteronormativity um, by a lot. And so there's a lot of resonance with the kind of word, the, the language and political projects of queer movements. All that being said, that's not true of 100% of the East community. So um, there are definitely people who don't identify as queer within the community and I wouldn't want to speak for them. But I think I like, like, are ace and queer compatible? Um, and, and do we have a place within broader queer movements? I think absolutely we do. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and I also have noticed, over, you know, one of the first things that I noticed is someone who came at a demisexual orientation by realizing I was bisexual in a different way than many of the people I was working with in community and by spaces. Um, I noticed right away this language uh, in terms of naming both a sexual orientation or sexual attraction and a romantic attraction in the label, and that the romantic attraction very closely paralleled uh, sexual orientation labels within LGBTQIA movements. And so I thought, huh, well, I can see myself here. And But then I thought, but this word bisexual, I've, ca- I've grown to be so attached to, like, I don't think I'll ever not use it. <laughs> You know, um, but I thought maybe part the ace dimension of of my identity is how I'm queer in a different way uh, as a bisexual person than many of my other bisexual peers. 
And so I felt as yeah. the ACE community added an important dimension of understanding of what bisexuality meant to me. And I think many other people who identify, for example, as both ACE and bi, of which there are many. Um, we even did, as you probably recall, um, we had some partnerships around ACE Awareness Week and Bi Awareness Week. Um, and we the, had the uh, creating change session that we did in the bi suite with the ACE folks. Um, so Yeah, exactly. When I think about like the, the things that at least I'll, I'm concerned about as an ACE activist, a lot of them are about um, having people uh, of all ages, but I think especially young people who are trying to figure out where they fit outside of the kind of norms of sexuality that have been given to them yeah. within our society. And and I think an important part of the queer project is just giving those people the words and the community and support that they need to know that their experience is beautiful and powerful uh, and capable of, of giving them a fabulous, expressive, aligned, authentic life. And they, uh, and I think that we need to be having a rich conversation about gender. We need to be having a rich conversation about race. We need to be having a rich conversation about aceness and a, a rich conversation about sexuality in order for people to be able to navigate themselves um, with support in that space. And I, if, we, if we try to imagine queerness without asexuality and without aceness, then we're imagining a world in which all of those people who are exploring their sexuality have a place not allowed to go. And I think that that's, that's tragic. Absolutely. Well, absolutely, I agree. And the idea of queerness, I think, is, uh, as you said, it's also about having empowering people to explore their authentic selves in ways that are beautiful and lead to, um, I guess, a better place. Because often, you know, you've echoed this earlier, too, people, if they feel different, they feel alone. And queerness mm -hmm. should be about finding places where we come together across different intersecting identities and experiences to find our authentic selves uh, and to do so in an empowering yeah. community that in some cases, um, it's not that we say no to the dominant social scripts, it's that we say yes to new ones also. So mm -hmm. I think that both and yeah. approach is something that... Um, I love that about the community spaces that I've seen emerging out of ACE community space and what it adds to the dialogue around queerness. And I'm really glad you brought up other dimensions like of identity that are really important too, like thinking about race or ethnicity, thinking about gender, thinking about se you know sex, thinking about, I think age is another one I would add, religion, all of these other mm. intersecting dimensions are also important to for people to find that place of empowerment in queer community and so or ace yeah. community or bi community <laughs> the list can go yeah. on um but yeah, yeah i really appreciate that sentiment um and agree 100 percent. we want to take a quick moment to thank cosmic johnny the band you hear playing right now for writing and recording our theme music their debut album, Good Grief, is available on Spotify. Wow. 
well, now that we've solved all of the major questions around definitions and whether or not Ace is queer, <laughs> gonna, I would love to hear more about um, asexuality.org and the Asexual Visibility Education Network. So what are these things? Mm-hmm. Um, why did you start them? I mean, I think we, you talked a little bit about why earlier, but um, how are these, how are asexuality.org and AVEN uh, important to ACE community space and um, what are they? Can you tell us just a little bit more? Uh, as I mentioned, I started uh, AVEN or asexuality.org in 2001. I used to say an asexuality.org when I'm doing interviews because that gets the URL out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they're, they're the same thing. It is a grassroots organization centered on a website at asexuality.org um, called AVEN. And uh, this organization, which is just barely technically a nonprofit because we just barely make the, we actually don't make enough money um, for the, to qualify for the IRS to consider us a 501c3. So we exist in this weird sort of nebulous space of community groups. We are a uh, fully grassroots organization, so we don't have any paid staff. Um, we raise the money that we need to pay for our servers, which is about 400 bucks a month because we get a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, we um, everything is volunteer. And most of what we do is the work of moderating and maintaining these forums. Uh, there's a group of elected administrators and moderators who, for the past seven, uh, really 16 years, I guess, thinking about when the forum started, um, for the past 16 years have been doing the work of maintaining a sense of safety on these forums and maintaining a place where people can come and talk about their identities and feel accepted and welcome, which is not an easy thing to do on the Internet. Yes. <laughs> and, um, right. Uh, we, we, we've seen how that kind of more broadly the Internet has uh, really been in deep crisis around these questions of safety and harassment. Um, and I think the way that we've uh, addressed that, you know, definitely not perfectly, has been with uh, the kind of very hard work of um, a pretty large group of amazing people who have stepped up to do that work. Um, because they see the importance of having a space that feels safe. And so that's, that's day-to-day probably the biggest thing that we do is maintaining that safe space in, uh, in the forums. Um, we've also engaged in a pretty wide range of visibility and education work. So we do media work with the press. We engage with uh, research organizations. We march in pride parades. We've spawned a wide range of other organizations that splintered off to become their own thing in the way that social movements do. So the uh, asexual community census, the ACE community census that I named earlier originally came out of AVEN. Asexual Awareness Week, which was founded by an activist named Sarah Beth Brooks, didn't formally come out of AVEN, but was very supported by AVEN in the beginning. Because we're the the first place, we're kind of the, the hub of where a lot of ACE activism has started. And uh, things have sort of continued to grow out from there. Something in the past couple of years, really the past maybe six, seven years, there's been a real blossoming of uh, in-person organizing. And so we, well, what started as meetup groups in major cities turned into sometimes multiple groups in major cities turned into 
ACES and AROS groups on a wide range of college campuses. And so now the, the focus of a lot of the organizing has moved from AVEN to a lot of local groups that originally started on AVEN that are now doing the work of putting together conferences. Group in LA will engage with studios that want to portray sexual characters in fiction. The group in New York has done some work to pass legislation in City Hall to promote ACE inclusive sex ed, um, and then trains New York's Department of Education on how to be ACE inclusive in sex ed. Um, so you see some uh, kind of powerful policy work happening on the ground. Uh, I think I'll pause there. Uh, Avon's done uh, many things, but it's because it's, it's not a formal organization, all the affiliations are loose. That, I mean, it's an amazing story and a rich history. And you're, you're right, I've definitely, I've lived in several cities um, across the U.S. and have seen uh, Ace and Arrow groups in all of them. So it's a real, um, it's absolutely amazing that that energy um, started online. It seems like a lot of things are starting online first, then moving into the world. I think that's also a really mm -hmm. interesting point and in story about um, this particular movement. So um, thank you for starting asexuality.org <laughs> in case I haven't yeah. told you lately. I also wanted to know a little bit more. So we've heard about kind of the infrastructure and how the movement blossomed and different ways that it's done so. Mm -hmm. But who participates? Who is coming? Where are people from? What are their identities and their backgrounds like? And um, how is it that the forum brings them all together? So who's coming is pretty broad. We have uh, a wide range of ages, a wide range of experiences of ace identity. Pretty early on, we started having folks who wanted to participate not primarily in English um, because they were uh, mostly because they were in parts of the they were in other parts of the world so what was originally an English language format even has pointed out to be Spanish French Portuguese there's a, a Hebrew language there's uh, they primarily speak in English the uh, community India is really starting to take off and is having conferences now um, so there's, there's a pretty broad reach internationally mm -hmm. um, I think that there's also a sense that younger folks are dominating the discourse online a lot of the time. And so we've had a need to create kind of pockets of pockets of safe spaces in the community for intersectional identities. Um, and this has been important in a, in a range of ways, but I think it's, it's been especially important when talking about intersectionality around race where one of the things that happened early on in the community was when we would meet up for the first time, um, we would realize that the community was vastly majority white. And this, in some ways, reflected some other parts of queer discourse, but also was, uh, I think, na naively surprising to us because we're like, oh, we're in a place where in principle, race shouldn't be visible. But of course, race was very visible in the language we were using and the, the ways in which we were accepting of people and the kinds of experiences that we were naming as ACE experiences. And so there's been a, uh, a deep project to explore those modes of intersection and find places where there is a discourse about black ACE experience and a discourse about um, uh, Asian American ACE experience, a discourse about Latinx ACE experience so that people
people who are having that experience can show up in a community where their their uh, their experience is going to be more deeply seen and acknowledged, rather than feeling like they have to hide part of their identity in order to explore their ace identity. Yeah. Um, and so, so you, you're asking about who's showing up, and I think that one of the things that is has been really important for us is recognizing that our ace identity is defined by intersection really, really deeply. There isn't a single unifying ace experience, um, in part because ace experience is really defined by the expectations that are, of sexuality that are put on our body. And the expectation of sexuality that's put on my body as a cis white man with class privilege is really different than the expectation of sexuality put on the body of a woman of color in a wheelchair. And we need to have ways of talking about that if we want to talk about um, what these community is. Definitely. I really appreciate uh, that answer. And I love that. Um, I think one of the powerful things about doing organizing online is that you can create those spaces um, in ways that are defined and you have an, a beautiful set of moderators who do a fantastic job um, on asexuality.org who can help craft some of those spaces by and for folks who come from those different experiences. And I really appreciate that very thoughtful answer. And I think that uh, there's a lot to, of work that needs to be done across queer movements and other movements to specifically uh, do more to ensure that the full breadth of the intersections that are within our societies are reflected within the work that we do. Because something that I've noted that in terms of when I was in at, uni at Michigan State University, I should say, when I was thinking about social mm -hmm. movements to participate in and where I wanted to help um, be part of leadership teams or be part of people who are really invested in creating community space, you know, outside of hierarchy. I thought about how beautiful it is that that queer movements, anyone can be a part of it from all of these other different intersecting identities. There was no membership limitation on the basis of sex or of race or of mm -hmm. class or of age or of ability or of any of these other many of religion of these many other intersecting characteristics and that made it really beautiful because I thought we can all come together and it also made it exceptionally difficult because society is not set up for us all to come together and there are real differences in power mm -hmm. privilege and access on the basis of some of these other intersecting experiences and identities um, that stop that from happening but in theory I loved how it was possible <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I, I think that uh, it's great to hear you talk about also discourse, language, um, creating spaces and how is that being done and how are you doing the outreach? Um, because when you have online spaces, like you said, even though people aren't visible languages and culture is and how you've gone mm -hmm. about trying to expand that. I mean, one thing you said already, um, just that the, the site has forms that are in different languages for just as one example. Mm -hmm. um, you're literally shifting the language <laughs> itself um, to be more inclusive because there's yeah. a need. And, and I think that the goal that I've come back to hasn't been so much like, let's get everyone in a room together and have them be happy because <laughs> I think that there's, there's going to be, like, like yeah. there's, there's going to be necessary, like it's necessary to have different spaces. Yes. With different sort of, expectations in rooms that are more comfortable to different people and have to, and to, to then have those spaces intersect. 
I think the, the thing that I've come back to is um, when people show up feeling alone mm-hmm. and feeling a little bit broken or more than a little bit broken, how many of those people can we give space to? How many of those people can we help to under, uh, give them a space where they can do the work of understanding themselves more deeply? And how many of those people are going to get turned away because we have built space that works for them? Yeah. And if we can expand, if we can expand the, the number of people who can find that very empowering experience that was really important to me, um, it continues to be really important to me as I, as I figure myself out. Like that's that's what uh, that's what drives me. I feel we've talked quite a bit now about community and identity, intersections, power, privilege, the meaning of queerness and its relation to aceness. What are what do different definitions mean and why? I feel like we've covered a lot, but what we and we've started to in some of those conversations also talk about this idea of research, um, and what mm-hmm. researchers might do has emerged a couple of times. But I'd really like us to direct the conversation more in that context to to ask you directly if you have any words of advice you would give to researchers who conduct asexual health research when it comes to working with these populations or measuring asexuality and health outcomes within ace populations? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give some brief history uh, about why this is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then answer that question if that's helpful, because I like storytelling. Yeah. Um, so early on, in the early days of the community, uh, we were, you know, me and a handful of other activists, were studying the history of um, research on trans populations, research on intersex populations, and we saw how um, poorly, methodologically poor research could create really bad institutional experiences for queer folks. And we were kind of this new thing that was emerging on the scene, and we were like, okay, we have, we have a brief window to set the norms of how research is done in a way that doesn't have us being treated by uh, health institutions or mental health institutions in ways that are really out of whack with how we see ourselves. And so we started engaging as much as we could with researchers and Leon basically to say, look, we want you to understand how we think about ourselves and to have that as context for your research. That's not, you know, naming what your conclusion should be, but it's, give, it's providing context to how you see and interpret these data. And, uh, and I think that that basic thing is is still the the core of advice that I would give is do the the work of understanding um, the language that we as ACEs use to name our own experience um, and have that in in, and and understand that in a rich narrative way and ideally understand that in an intersectional way (laughs) um, uh, before sitting down to interpret data about people because I think that will help to give a lot of uh, that'll help help to give a lot of context to those data so I, I can I'll, I'll name quickly a couple of ways to do that if you're listening to this podcast and thinking about working on a project uh, the there's a magazine there's a journal called the asexual which is really excellent uh, which covers topics like um, asexuality and race asexuality and uh, there's um, asexuality and body they just came out with one on asexual representation. I think they're really, really excellent. They're a great place to start if to, to get that kind of richer understanding of the experience in the community when doing research. 
There's also the ACE Community Census that we named earlier um, is done once a year and releases um, some good, some great kind of preliminary data on the on the structure of the community, uh, which is really helpful. Thank you. I think those are both great resources, and uh, I love the Asexual Journal. And the ACE Community Census is something that we're partnering. Um, we've partnered now with uh, that team, and I've obviously talked with, with you, David, about doing outreach with AVEN mm -hmm. to, to do some of our own research. And um, I think one other valuable thing about the ACE Community Census is that there are questions developed by and for ACE community members to measure the important dimensions of asexual identity and experience. And I think that could also, yeah. those questions could be a great starting point for researchers um, when thinking about how to prioritize the community voice and an understanding of itself when thinking about how to do research studies um, about the population. Um, and um, the, the other thing I'll point out quickly, I just remember this, because we have such a history of working with researchers, um, there is a, uh, a research coordinator and kind of a a set of policies in place for helping researchers who want to um, do either recruit from these community or just do ACE research. So uh, please reach out to us and we'll um, help, uh, see if we can help with your project, however we can. Yeah, thanks for that. And it's it's amazing to me, like to connecting what you said earlier about the structure of AVEN, just how true that is and how responsive you are given that you don't have paid staff like i've never found that to be a limitation with uh, being able to work with you all which is amazing <laughs> so thank you yeah i really have appreciated that um as someone who's who's moving into this area and so what i wanted to combine um, a couple of questions we have next uh i know we've been talking for a while but i'm really wondering mm -hmm. if you think of some, what are some ACE Health research questions that uh, we, you think that researchers should be studying and why? Um, what are some topics and domains that you think might be important? Mm. So I think one area that I would really love to see deeper research around is um, health disparities among ACE populations. I know from some of the really excellent research that was done by DHS, I think under the, under the Obama administration, and queer folks were cared about, cared about um, that there's some very rough health disparities around um, queer young folks broadly around uh, rates of STIs, rates of, um, uh, rates of suicidal ideation, rates of drug use, and how some of those reflect into the AIDS community. I know that when, young, when folks are struggling with this sense that, um, as only talked about a little, that there's something wrong with them and that they're broken, that that can have really negative outcomes. Um, we already know from within our community that that can, uh, one, of, one of those negative outcomes is that ACEs can be targeted with uh, corrective sexual assault. And so that's something that experientially we've been dealing with in that sports pull down. It would be great to have research that kind of understands that experience more deeply. I think on the less of a bummer side, yeah. uh, I think there's some really fantastic and beautiful things being done around the way that intimacy is being talked about within the ACE community. Because many of the normative scripts of intimacy are unavailable to us, there are people who are forming 
a really broad range of cool new model relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to see some research into the, the kind of spectrum of uh, forms of intimacy and ways of talking about intimacy that are happening in this community. Um, I also think there's some really, you alluded to this uh, earlier, Lauren, that there's some really interesting kind of online movement building happening and happening all over the world. So as I said before, just in the past couple of years, ACES in India have really built an infrastructure um, and are beginning to shift uh, dialogue about what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual and not to identify as sexual within um, uh, within India, a place where queerness and LGB identity are <laughs> still a lot more contested than they are, at least here in the States. And so I think that there's some really interesting work to be done around the way that uh, ACEs as a movement is growing and shifting uh, cultural and social dialogue. Thank you for that. I know it can be really hard, especially when starting off with health disparities, how difficult it is to even analyze or access or read about some of those things because they do reflect, like you said, the cost of social exclusion and isolation. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. something that we are actively working on better understanding because um, I, for the purpose that I wanted to uh, move us into next is how can we use the results of research to advance community advocacy? How can research, even research findings that might be tied to things like disparities, as opposed to the beautiful research that could be done to explore how ACE experiences can expand models for human happiness through intimacy or through building better movements? You know, how do we go about um, disseminating research results and how do we use research findings, um, whether for on the side that's more disparities or on the side that's more about deepening models to improve intimacy, for example, in different ways. How can we use these types of research to advance ACE community advocacy? How does research help with that process? And how should community people be involved versus researchers being involved in that process? So um, research has been hugely valuable to us uh, because a lot of, a lot of the I, historically, the most impactful work that we do is we will find a group of people in some key organization. Sometimes it's a government organization, sometimes it's an NGO, sometimes it's a private company. We'll find a people, a group of people. We'll go in, you know, maybe over lunch, and we'll give them a presentation about what ACE experience is and what the ACE community is. And research that we have helps to ground that experience and why it matters to them. So if we're talking to uh, a LGBT center, then being able to talk about the experiences and health disparities of ACE young people gives them um, a reason, like a very concrete reason, why they need to be including ACE perspective in their work. If we're talking to a studio that's going to be portraying an ACE character, then talking, then having this research helps them understand the, the depth of what that character might be struggling with, and also the importance of having a thoughtful uh, and accurate portrayal of ACE experience. If we're talking to a city council or we're talking to a department of ed, then, the, then this research can help to build that case. So I think that it's, 
It is important to us from a policy standpoint. I think it's also, you know, as we said, as I said, we don't have a lot in the way of financial resources, and really no one in real organizing does. But uh, it's helpful for us to understand what we need to be supporting people around, what we need to be training people around, what we need to be, uh, where we need to be uh, directing our support within the community to create resources to help people. Um, so there, you know, several years ago, there was not, there weren't real good resources for ACE survivors and the, of uh, sexual violence. And because those people are starting to become poor and because there was clear evidence, um, we were then able to help to resource the creation of support infrastructure for folks. And I see research as uh, also helping us to understand uh, what we as a community need to be focused on. Thank you very much for that. I love that you highlighted the bi-directional nature of it, that researchers um, can help, that research helps empower communities and that communities help create good research. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. I mean, I think that is the whole point of our podcast series <laughs> that we yeah. have going on. Yay. So <laughs> awesome. Um, one thing I wanted to, to bring up in relation to some of concrete results that have occurred because of research and policy advocacy. Can you talk a little bit about having asexuality be depathologized within the DSM-5? Yes, definitely. So within the DSM-4, there was a diagnosis of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or the disorder you had if you didn't like sex enough. Um, And this uh, disorder was becoming contentious because there were groups who were developing pills um, to try to address it, like pills to make people more sexual. And they really wanted to be able to insurance companies to cover these pills, and in order to do that, there had to be a diagnosis on the books. And we, when the DSM-5 was being created several years before, I happened to be visiting the National Center for Transgender Equality and their executive director, you know, again, talk about support within queer communities, their executive director sat me down and said, the DSM-5 is coming out. We have an entire campaign to change the way that they're talking about gender. You need to have a campaign to talk about the way that change they're talking about asexuality and, like, here's how you do it, and kind of gave me a playbook. And so we saw the um, research, you know, tracked which researchers got put in charge of um, discussions of sexuality, and it just happens to be that one of the lead researchers in the world on asexuality, Dr. Lori Brado out of uh, University of British Columbia, was on that panel. Nice. Uh, and so we really lucked out um, because this person that we built, you know, invested in a relationship with for several years was now in, in a powerful position. But we wanted to be able to support her, so we put together a task force and basically went out and collected, not only sort of collected every scrap of literature we could find on this experience, but did uh, interviews with every researcher that we could find who had done his work about um, the, the uh, exploring this question of whether or not aceness was a, uh, should be considered pathological asexuality should be considered pathological. And we had some studies that showed that there were, um, aceness itself was not 
correlated with um, other negative health outcomes we or that uh, or that it was not caused by uh, that the, there was no evidence that it was uh, the result of of some other condition mm-hmm. and we put together I think what wound up being like a hundred plus page packet of stuff a task force of maybe six of us and sent it to the committee so that they could have it to inform their decision and what uh, they wound up replacing um, hypersexual hyperactive sexual desire disorder with something called um, SIAD, um, female sexual arousal inhibition disorder. Yeah. And within that, there was a much more explicit call out that, first of all, people who experienced a lifelong and generalized interest in sexuality, um, as opposed to people who experienced a sudden disinterest in sexuality, were kind of treated as a separate category, and people who identified as asexual were explicitly named as not being pathological. While there's still complexity, we got a lot, uh, a lot of recognition, a lot of a space within the definition for our experience, uh, and I, that was really a direct result of having relationships with researchers and having people who've done really incredible research that we could use to inform this process. Um, I think there was a similar the less in-depth process around uh, work in the city of New York to get uh, ACE-inclusive sex ed recommended uh, across New York City public schools. Thank you so much uh, for both of those great stories, the success stories for showing the power of building these alliances to create change to benefit the lives of um, ACE communities. I think that's incredibly powerful, yeah. and I can't wait to see what's next. Um, which I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess that kind of, we've gone through a lot in this interview now, um, and I'm, I'm wondering, though, if there's anything else that you would like to add on any topic we've discussed or ones we haven't or just even some closing thoughts you might want to share. Um, so thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation. Uh, I just want to emphasize again how excited I am to be working with researchers, how grateful I am for the work that you all are doing um, to help to elevate the level of informed public dialogue about ace identity and about sexuality in general. Um, because I, I, it can be lonely and tiring work, um, but uh, it has a really powerful and positive impact on people's lives. Well, with that, I want to say just thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart, David Jay, for joining us today. David Jay is the founder of asexuality.org. So with that, I will thank you again and say I hope you have a good rest of your afternoon. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Yep. Take care. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed David and Lauren's conversation. Be sure to check out asexuality.org to learn more about the online community they discussed. As always, you can follow edit at NU on Twitter to stay up to date on all our work. Thanks. Thanks.